The Deseret Book Audio Library presents S. Michael Wilcox and a presentation entitled Of Lions, Dragons, and Turkish Delight. This presentation was given in front of a live audience. And now, Michael Wilcox. Just a few comments before we begin the presentation. C.S. Lewis spent his youth in Ireland, had some very unpleasant school experiences in the English educational system before a private tutor he called the Great Knock taught him how to think. Oxford came next, which became his home for the majority of his life. In his youth, he shed his religion with some relief and became a sometimes atheist. I didn't believe God existed, he said, and I was angry at him for not existing. But God knew his potential and pursued him relentlessly, as Lewis himself asserted. Influenced by his Christian friends, J.R.R. Tolkien among them, C.S. Lewis in time and after a struggle accepted the realities of Christianity and became its greatest defender. His warmth and humane understanding of the personality, the character, and the attributes of God the Father and His Son Jesus, and his honest insight into the human condition and how the teachings of Christ spoke with such mercy and compassion to that condition has endeared C.S. Lewis to Christians of all denominations. We all claim a share in him. He attended the Anglican Church as a means of, as he put it, the only way of flying your flag. But the words he wrote and spoke bridged many divides. Though as Latter-day Saints we may not find agreement and clarification on all points and doctrines in C.S. Lewis's writings. His penetrating accuracy on so many fronts will resonate within us as it resonates within the hearts of Christians everywhere. I discovered Lewis when I came across his story of a busload of sinners from hell making a visit to heaven. One of them had a red lizard on his shoulder that eventually would turn into a beautiful stallion but more of that later. I was hooked immediately, and from that time forward, devoured every book Lewis ever wrote. And now, let's begin our in-depth presentation of Lions, Dragons, and Turkish Delight. A small boy in Belfast, Ireland, looked out his nursery window at a low line of hills in the distance. They were not very far off, he said, but they were to children quite unattainable. They taught me longing. This was a longing for something he could not understand, nor how to reach the unknown thing or things or person or place he longed for. That longing, its realization and fulfillment became, as he later said, the central story of my life. He would in time discover what it was he yearned for and how to reach that destination. And in those discoveries, he would change not only himself, but the Christian world. His name was Clive Staples Lewis, but his friends all called him Jack. 
when he was very little, he decided Clive was not a great name for a boy to have and called himself Jacksey. And everybody then, for the rest of his life, he became known as Jack. Today we want to talk a little bit about C.S. Lewis and the great impact that he had. And I want to let him do most of the talking, uh, not me, so that you get a flavor and a sense of this great man and his theology, especially how that theology dovetails and helps us understand our own theology. Because there were things that Lewis taught that resonates with all Christians, certainly. There's also things he taught that resonates particularly with Latter-day Saints. Almost all Christian groups claim him, so he must have had something about him that appealed to everyone from the Roman Catholic to the Jehovah Witness, and to you and I as Latter-day Saints. I'd like to introduce Lewis by another Lewis, Lewis Carroll, another great British writer of children's literature. In uh, Alice in Wonderland, Remember the moment when Alice meets the Cheshire cat. There's this interesting little conversation that has some profound ideas in it. Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here, said Alice. That depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. As long as I get somewhere, Alice added as an explanation, Oh, you're sure to do that, said the cat, if you only walk long enough. This idea of destinations and roads kind of fascinated Lewis Carroll, as it will fascinate C.S. Lewis. In another place, Lewis Carroll wrote, If you don't know where you are going, any road will get you there. Now, it seems obvious to us that uh, it is very, very critical that we know where we're going and that we know the road that will get us there. Many people in the world are kind of like Alice. They're lost in a different world, and they don't know where they're going. They don't have a destination, and so they take any road, and they end up, we might say, anywhere. I had the opportunity, the great fortune, to work for my Ph.D., my dissertation on C.S. Lewis. So for three years, I just studied Lewis's writing read everything that he ever wrote. And if there's one thing that I became very, very convinced of by the end of that time was that Lewis knew the destination that Christianity was headed towards, that all of life was headed towards. He also knew the road that would get us there, and he knew that that journey and that destination involved a great deal of joy and happiness. He called the story of his own life in his own autobiography surprised by joy. And by surprised, he meant surprised by the amount of joy God wished us to have and also the quality of that joy that God wished us to have. Most of you are probably familiar that uh, he wrote a series of children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia. They just did the first one in a, in a world-class movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In the very last of The Chronicles of Narnia, the seventh one in the series called The Last Battle. Aslan, for those who maybe are not aware of the Chronicles of Narnia, Narnia is a, a kind of a make-believe world that children go into through a wardrobe, through a picture, through a gate, through doorways. And there they meet Aslan, who is a lion, 
who is a symbol for Christ. So everything you read and learn and hear about Aslan, you are to apply it and to think, well, this is really the Savior that Lewis is teaching me about. At the very end, then, of the last battle, the children have a final conversation with Aslan. They have just watched the end of Narnia as a the giant time reaches up and grabs the sun and squeezes it into blackness, and a great flood of water washes over all of Narnia. But as they turn around behind the door that they're watching this in, they realize that the real Narnia, kind of the eternal Narnia, is there better than it ever was before. But they aren't quite as happy as Aslan thinks they should be. And so he says, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. I think that's probably a question and a statement the Savior often makes to us, even in our lives now. You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan. You have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. Now you have to understand, just pause for a second, how much Lewis hated school. Maybe that's why I like Lewis so much, because I just hated school growing up. Kindergarten was okay. okay? In a perfect world, we go from kindergarten right into college. <laughs> Lewis called his one of his school experiences concentration camp, and he named it Belson. Okay? So it gives you an idea how he felt about school. So when he says the term is over, the holidays have begun, you have to under, understand that sense of June joy that he meant, that Aslan is saying, the term is over, the holidays have begun, the dream is ended, this is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked at them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the last one. Now, what we want to try and understand today a little bit as we look at Lewis's theology, particularly as it applies to our LDS perspective, is that chapter one of the great story. In the Doctrine and Covenants, we are told over a third of the sections to be happy be of good cheer, to rejoice, to be glad. Obviously, God intends us to be glad. So what does this chapter one of the great story consist of? Well, Lewis felt the purpose of Christianity, uh, the scriptures, really anything God does with his children, was not just to produce better men or to help us live a good life. There was a specific end, that destination we were heading to, and that end was going to be a tremendous amount of joy. And so he wrote 
In setting up a good life as our final goal, we have missed the very point of our existence. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. Now, what was this new kind of man? Well, you and I as Latter-day Saints would say God's. That is the destiny to which we are heading. Lewis would agree. What was this new kind of man in mere Christianity? I'm going to quote from just a, a number of different places so you can see how, how prevalent his belief was in the final destiny of man. Christ is going to make good his words if we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose. He will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a god or goddess. Dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly. Screw tape. God wanted to make saints, gods, things like himself. The great divorce. The Lord said we were gods. How long could you bear to look without time's lens on the greatness of your own soul and the eternal reality of her choices? In a letter to a friend, every real Christian is really called upon in some measure to enact Christ. Lewis wrote a series of three uh, science fiction novels. In one called Paralandra, the king of another world, right? It's not Christ, just an inhabitant, the king of another world. He describes him this way. It was a face which no man can say he does not know. You might ask how it was possible to look upon it and not commit idolatry, not to mistake it for that of which it was the likeness, for the resemblance was in its own fashion infinite so that almost you could wonder at finding no sorrows in his brow, no wounds in his hands and in his feet. If you picture a, a wheel, a kind of a wagon wheel with lots of spokes coming in, that hub in the center holds all the spokes. If you don't have the hub, no sense having the spokes. They, they're all going to fall apart. It's the hub that holds them all together and gives meaning to them. In a sense, as you look at Lewis's theology, this is the hub. And every other aspect was meaningless without that hub to hold it together, that destination to which we were headed. So he says, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself, are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. Sometimes it amazes me as I, as I read Lewis how closely he came to Joseph Smith. Now, the prophet Joseph would always take one step further, right? But how closely he came 
Joseph once said, if you will lead a soul to salvation, and I have to believe Lewis led a lot of souls to salvation, that your mind had to stretch. It had to expand. And as you think about this idea that Lewis is teaching, you can see that mind just stretching out and expanding. Joseph wrote in the Pearl of Great Price, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. God told Moses that after he had said to him, I've been making worlds without number in the past. I have worlds without number now, and I'm going to go right on making worlds without number on into the future in eternity. I like my job, right? And I'm going to keep on doing it. And the whole essence of my job is man. And to make men enjoy life the way I enjoy it. It seems that celestial happiness consists of the happiness of other people. And helping all of God's children feel the same joy and live the same life that God himself lived. Again in Screwtape, Lewis wrote, Christ really does want to fill the universe with a lot of little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life will be qualitatively like his own because their wills freely conform to his. Now Lewis never got to the point where he asked the next logical question. Joseph asked it. The next logical question is if we are going to be little Christ, if we're going to be like God, if we're going to pulsate and radiate with the same joy of God, what will we do? Lewis's answer essentially was, we'll be happy. <laughs> what will one do? And it was Joseph Smith who would take that next step. Well, if I have the joy of a God and the light and the radiance of a God, I must be a God. I must therefore do what a God does. Once again, I say Joseph Smith was always amazing to me as I read Lewis how close he got. But to always see the prophet Joseph just make that next step, that doctrinally. Well, if we're going to be like gods, it must mean the individual is very critical. Everyone sitting here today has infinite worth. That was the practical ramification for Lewis of that doctrine. If that is our destiny, then every single individual has infinite worth. The Doctrine and Covenants uh, says uh, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God and tries to qualify it by saying the worth of souls, a soul is worth the atonement. That's infinite worth. A soul is worth a lifetime of a man's labor. That's section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Lewis also understood the great value of a soul, and he often wrote comparative things so we could see each individual sitting here today is worth more than. Let's see what that is. In uh, Mere Christianity, Lewis wrote, if Christianity is true, then the individual is not only more important, but incomparably more important. For he is everlasting, and the life of a state or a civilization compared with his is only for a moment. Each individual in here is worth more than a state 
or a civilization. He wrote a little piece called Christianity and Literature. He was a teacher of Renaissance and medieval literature at both Oxford and Cambridge. So he knew the value of Shakespeare, for instance. But how does Shakespeare's writings compare to each one of you here? Lewis wrote, the Christian knows from the outset that the salvation of a single soul is more important than the production or preservation of all the epics and tragedies in the world. Being a great lover of King Lear, Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, that's a profound statement. There will come a time, he wrote in a little piece called Membership, there will come a time when every culture, every institution, every nation, the human race, all biological life is extinct, and every one of us is still alive. Immortality is promised to us, not to these generalities. It was not for societies or states that Christ died, but for men. And then a phrase I really love. We shall live to remember the galaxies as an old tale. And it's hard for us to comprehend that if we put all those together, you and I, as individuals, not as a group, as individuals, are worth more than states, civilizations, cultures, institutions, arts, nations, epics, tragedies. Lewis, when he was at Oxford, gave a talk called The Weight of Glory at St. Mary's Church. Now, that expression, The Weight of Glory, comes from the writings of Paul. Paul spoke of an exceeding and an eternal weight of glory. Joseph Smith will take that same phrase and put it into section 132 as his definition of godhood, an eternal and an exceeding weight of glory. Both Lewis and Joseph Smith drew on that phrase from Paul. In that particular talk, I think Lewis stated the value of individuals better than anywhere else. The load or the weight or the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and the most uninteresting person you can talk to, think about that person for just a minute, who's the dullest person you can, got that person in your minds? The dullest and the most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings one with another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest thing ever presented to you. When I first started teaching, it's a personal thought here. 
I had two young men who sat in the back of the classroom who had a goal of making my life miserable. I was not much older than these two young men, and I was intimidated. And if you let high school students know you're a little bit intimidated by them, they will take advantage of it. And these two boys took advantage of it. I had a very interesting dream one night about those two boys. I didn't like them, can I be honest with you? If I had a really good lesson, I used to pray God would smite them with the flu so they wouldn't come and wreck it for me. Say, you know, Lord, do me a favor, Lord, have these boys sick today so I can have a good lesson. Uh, they never seemed to get sick. They were the healthiest things uh, the Lord ever put on earth. Well, when I had a dream about them, maybe I should call it a nightmare. It's interesting the symbolism that our minds creates for us with the help of the Spirit. I, I dreamed I was in prison with these two boys. And we were filthy and, and we were exercising in the exercise yard outside of prison. And it was muddy and we were in rags and there wasn't a beautiful, pretty thing anywhere. Just concrete walls and mud. And one was on either side of me. I remember feeling very uncomfortable to be, to be in the environment and to be with the company. And all of a sudden, a light from an unknown source just wrapped itself around us and flowed through us. And it filled you with great joy and great glory and great warmth and great beauty. And it began to lift us up out of the mud, higher and higher into the air. And I looked down. I never stopped looking down from the moment the light wrapped itself around us and began to lift us up. I never stopped looking down. I was aware that these two boys were being lifted with me in the air. But I just was fascinated by watching the prison shrink till we could see over the walls to green countryside on the outside. And the prison kept shrinking smaller and smaller as we went higher and higher and the light increased more and more. I felt that the light went right through you. But if I looked behind me, I would see no shadows. It was that kind of a light. Pretty soon the prison was so small I couldn't even see it. Just a tiny brown dot in a great, beautiful countryside of green. But we kept lifting higher and higher until all the features of the countryside kind of disappeared. And then the edges of the continent came into view. And the continent shrunk and I was looking down at America. And the light kept getting greater and greater. And it, it began to be, it was so powerful that it, it hurt almost. You thought, I can't bear any more of this. And then the edges of the world came into view. And then the world shrunk down smaller and smaller as farther into heaven we went until finally the earth was just a pinpoint of light in a great sea of light and it just kind of disappeared. And when that happened, I looked up for the very first time, and there in front of me was a beautiful city made out of crystal. And as the light flowed through every angle and corner of it, it split it into all the colors of the rainbow. It was just glorious. A great open door, gate to the city. And a being came out of it, dressed in white. And the light flooded and poured from him. And I thought, this is the source of the light. And he came over to us, and then just a few feet in front of us, he stopped and he looked very, very carefully, this great celestial being. Then he said a single word, but he said it with great intensity. 
He said, look. And so I looked at him. Who would you look at in that situation? And he smiled and shook his head again. And he said a second time with great eagerness that it would give him great joy for me to see what he was looking at. He said, look. And I looked at him harder. And he shook his head again. And this time he pointed straight at the three of us and said a third time, look. I thought he wants me to look at myself. And so I looked down and I looked at the two boys on either side of me. And the rags and the filth was gone and and we were dressed in white as he was. But more important and what he wanted us to see was that the light was flowing from us in the same intensity that it was flowing from him. Now I think as best I can would say that is what Lewis was describing. That all people, even those we don't like, the two boys at the back of the classroom that we want to be sick, (laughs) if we reach our full potential, will be just as radiant, just as glorious, and therefore have the same quality of joy that every celestial being has our Father in heaven, his Son, and that that will create for you and I tremendous joy. Now that takes time. doesn't happen at once, right? Uh, Lewis helped us to look at ourselves and to one another through time's great lens. Remember, he said, we Christians think man lives forever. Therefore, what really matters is those little marks on the central inside part of the soul, which are going to turn it, in the long run, into a heavenly creature. Now, knowing that, uh, knowing that that is our destination, it becomes a motivation to walk the road. And the road isn't always easy to walk. If we're going to be pure as he is pure, if we're going to be radiate the light that he radiates, if we're going to be a God as he is a God, changes must come. And they may be painful, as Lewis believed, because I think they were painful in his own life. But joy, it must be remembered, was the final outcome. Joy even in the challenge of pain and change. And Lewis felt that we dare not shy away from the changes. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a wonderful little exchange between Aslan and two horses. This is in a book called The Horse and His Boy. That's the right title. The horse owns the boy, so to speak. And one of the horses is kind of proud. His name is Bree. And finally, these two horses, the mare Huen and the, and the stallion Bree, come face to face with Aslan. Please, she said, this is the mare, you are so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I would sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. That's a beautiful concept of Christ, right? We'd rather be swallowed up in him than fed by any other source. 
Dearest daughter, said Aslan, planting a lion's kiss on her twitching velvet nose, I knew you would not be long in coming to me. Joy shall be yours. Then he lifted his head and spoke in a louder voice. Now, Bree, he said, you poor, proud, frightened horse, draw near. Nearer still, my son, do not dare not to dare. Do not dare not to dare. It will be difficult. I am not the kind of a being Christ is. But knowing that I can be will help me to go through the changes. There's another little conversation, I dare not do it. T.S. Eliot wrote a, a wonderful piece about daring. He spoke of the awful daring of a moment's surrender, costing not less than everything. And that is the daring that will be required of us to meet Lewis's end. There's another wonderful little moment uh, in the Chronicle of Narnia called the Silver Chair, where Jill goes into Narnia for the first time. She's never been there before. And she meets Aslan, this great lion. And they have a little conversation. She's very thirsty. She can hear some water off in the distance, and she wants to go to the living water he has to give her. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. Sometimes that's what we say to Jesus. He says, come. We say, well, I will, but don't hurt me. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step near. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and empires, cities and realms, said the lion. He didn't say it as if he were boasting, nor as if he were sorry, nor as if he were angry. He just said it. Oh, I dare not come then, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. We drink or we die. We dare not not dare to come forward and go through the remaking. Lewis felt we needed to be new creatures. Christ was the first example of the new creature. He said he was a pioneer, not a prodigy. He was the first of the new men. He will not be the last. Many of us will also be there. There is a, a little exchange in a book called The Wind in the Willows. How many of you have ever heard of The Wind in the Willows? Mr. Toad, Rat, Mole, you know. Uh, Lewis liked an exchange in The Wind in the Willows. Uh, Kenneth Graham also, like many British writers of children's literature, put spiritual truths into his writing. And there is a story of a lost otter. And as you read it, you know that it is really the story of the lost sheep. Only this time the good shepherd is not Christ. It's the God of forest animals. This is a book about forest creatures. And the God is the Greek God Pan. But he's described and, and you feel as you come into his presence that this really is, as Aslan is Christ, so too is Pan Christ. And rat and mole come into his presence. And Graham writes, still as he looked, he lived. This is the mole. And still, as he lived, he wondered. 
Rat, he said in a whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid? Of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, oh, mole, I am afraid. Now that's probably how we'll approach the change, the living water, but we do not dare not to dare. Lewis wrote a little piece called Rabbit or Man. Now the rabbit is all the things that make us unhappy. And all Christ is going to do is to remove all the things that make us unhappy so we can have joy. We are to be remade. All the rabbit in us is to disappear. The worried, conscientious, ethical rabbit as well as the cowardly and sensual rabbit. We shall bleed and squeal as the handfuls of fur come out. And then surprisingly, we shall find underneath it all a thing we have never yet imagined. A real man, an ageless God, a son of God, strong, radiant, wise, beautiful, and drenched in joy. I love that last idea, drenched in joy. Now, sometimes Lewis used the different images for what we call the natural man or the old man that needed to be removed, what he called here the rabbit. we got to pull the rabbit fur out. My very first introduction to Lewis was the book, The Great Divorce. In The Great Divorce, the rabbit, the thing that we have to get rid of because it prevents us from having joy, was a lizard sitting on the shoulder of an inhabitant of hell who was visiting heaven. Now, The Great Divorce is a story about a busload of sinners from hell who get on a bus and drive to heaven. Lewis had a great imagination. And all the people on the bus, when they get to heaven, they see a chain of mountains on the distance, and a legion of angels come over the chain of mountains and greet them. And they give them a choice. They tell them, first of all, that this isn't heaven proper, this is kind of heaven suburbs, and that real heaven is on the other side of the mountains but that they can stay. They don't have to go back to hell. And they can even progress over the mountains into the highest, most central part of heaven. They just have to give up, essentially, their most precious thing. And as the great divorce continues, nobody can do it except one person. They all get back on the bus and go back to hell, unable to give up their most precious thing. Now, the one man who does it has a lizard sitting on his shoulder. It's red, and it talks to him, and he talks to the lizard. They talk back and forth. And an angel comes and says, do you want to stay? Oh, I don't want to go back to hell. Well, then we have to give up our most precious thing. What is it? Oh, it's this. It's the lizard. I've raised him from a little lizardlet, you know, whatever we call baby lizards. Well, you'll have to kill it. And there is this immense struggle between the man and the angel and the lizard. He can't quite bring himself to tear the lizard off. And the lizard keeps trying to talk him out of it, saying, they don't really mean it, they don't really want you in deep heaven, you'll always be a lesser inhabitant. And the angel keeps countering every argument of the lizard. 
until finally in a great moment, a very difficult moment, the man, with the help of the angel, reaches up and grabs the lizard who clings to him so tightly that he is afraid if he pulls it off, some of him will come with it. But they pull the lizard off and break its back and the man says, oh, I'm done for and collapses in pain. And then something wonderful happens. The angel kind of touches the man and lifts him up and he rises young and virile and powerful. And they watch the lizard who writhes and changes and transforms until a beautiful stallion is standing there. And the angel says, now climb on back of the stallion, the horse. Ride triumphant over the mountains into heaven. You truly gave up your most precious thing. Now what did that lizard symbolize? What is our most precious thing? Symbolized his sins. If, by definition, our most precious thing is that which we would keep at the expense of all other things, sadly, our sins are our most precious things. Lewis believed the door to hell was locked from the inside. God did not lock you in. You went in there of your own free will, largely because you could not remove the lizards. Now, in the voyage of the dong treader, the lizard... The rabbit fur becomes a dragon. And in that story, it kind of tells us how we get the lizards on our backs. In the story, we're introduced to a young boy named Eustace. And it kind of sounds like useless because that's what he is. He's a very nasty little kid. He complains about everything. He's Lewis's symbol for you and I, unfortunately. And when this ship has a wreck, he doesn't want to help fix it. So he wanders off on his own so he can get out of work. And as he comes down over a mountain, he sees a little opening and a cave and a pool of water. And he's hiding behind a tree at the moment that a great dragon comes out of the cave, obviously in pain. The dragon walks over to the pool and gets a little drink and then collapses. Now, Eustace doesn't know if he's dead or alive because, as Lewis said, he read all the wrong books and didn't know anything about dragons. But finally, timidly, carefully walking out, he realizes the dragon is dead. Then it begins to rain, and he rushes into the cave. And there he finds what is in all dragons' caves. If you have read the right books here, you will know what is in dragons' caves. Treasure. Mounds of treasure. And he revels in it and he thinks of all the ways he can sneak it back to Narnia and take his revenge on everybody that he thinks has been unpleasant to him and treated him badly. He'll hide it on the ship and become powerful and the king of Narnia and all these kind of evil thoughts. And it makes him tired. And so he makes a bed and he goes to sleep. But just before he goes to sleep, he places a golden when he awakes, the sun is set, it is dark, and the moon is kind of shining in the front of the cave. And he sees ahead of him two jets of black steam puffing up in regular order of breathing. And he thinks, oh no, the dragon had a mate, it's returned. He holds his breath, and as he holds his breath, the steam stops. And then he lets it out slowly, trying not to cause attention to himself, and the steam issues forth in a straight jet. 
He reaches to the left to try and feel for the wall to sneak out that way. And as he reaches, he sees a great dragon claw come into view. He freezes. It freezes. He lowers it. It lowers. The dragon is on the right side of him. He reaches his left hand up. And as he does so, to feel for that wall, another great claw comes up into view. He freezes. It freezes. He drops it. It drops. There's another dragon on the left, or there's a dragon over him with its paws around him and it's mimicking his every move. He decides his only way to get out is to jump up and make a run for it. Maybe he can get in the pool. So he jumps up and runs, but as he does so, he notices a number of things. He feels a biting, pinching on his arm where he put the gold ring earlier. He notices he's running on all fours. A great noise is erupting from the cave as gold and jewels are scattered. And finally, when he comes to the reflection pool there in the moonlight, he reaches his head over and he sees the ugly face of a dragon looking up at him. The jets of steam were his own breath. The claw on the right was his claw. The claw on the left was his claw. He had become a dragon. Now Lewis writes, Eustace, sitting in a dragon's cave, thinking greedy dragonish thoughts on dragon's treasure, had become a dragon. We might say, sitting in the world's cave, thinking worldly thoughts, we become like the world. Sitting in God's cave, on God's treasure, thinking godly thoughts, we become like God. Well, Aslan will not let him remain a dragon. So he goes through a kind of repentance. He lets the other children know in certain ways that he's really Eustace, and with his great strength, he begins to help repair the ship. And after a certain time of penitence and sorrow, one night he sees a great lion pacing in the moonlight, calling to him. He says, I felt I had no choice but to follow. He follows him onto the top of a mountain where there's a beautiful pool of water there. And Eustace can never get that gold ring off his arm and it pinches and bites and cuts him. But he thinks that if he could bathe it down in the water, maybe it would help. I assume that ring in many cases symbolizes one's conscience that fits very well when you're a little boy, but it hurts and bites and cuts when you're a dragon. And so he moves towards the pool, and Aslan says, You may bathe in my pool, but you must first undress. He doesn't understand what that means, but finally realizing the dragons are kind of like snakes, maybe he's just supposed to remove a layer of skin. So he claws and scratches and pulls a layer down and throws it into the moonlight. And then steps to the pool. Aslan, that's not good enough. You'll have to undress again. He scratches and pulls and throws another one over. Not good enough. You'll have to undress again a third time until Eustace is in despair. And finally, Aslan says, I suppose I will have to undress you for you. And he lies on his back and Aslan takes a claw and he takes a deep swipe. Eustace says later, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. 
And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch. Then with velvet paws, Aslan picks him up and lays him under the water and heals him, breathes on him, gives him clothes, sends him back to the children. Now that comment of Eustace, the ones I peeled off, didn't hurt, was an important idea for Lewis. Sometimes uh, we go to the Savior and we, we want to get healed or helped in some little thing, right? Maybe we're watching the wrong kind of movies, and so we scratch and peel and throw that at him and say, is that enough? And that's not enough. And maybe we're irritable. Maybe we get angry. Maybe we gossip. Maybe we have a little problem with the word of wisdom or tithing. Maybe we waste time. And we just kind of peel and, and lay him down. But the whole dragon skin has got to come off. The lizard has to be removed. All the rabbit has to be pulled out because those are all the things that make us unhappy. Lewis taught these same principles straight up without fantasy, not without metaphor. Metaphor was his natural environment. So let's see what he means by pulling the rabbit out or taking the lizard off or peeling back the dragon skin in a form that is easier for us to understand. In mere Christianity, he said, we take as a starting point our ordinary self with all its various desires and interests. We then admit that something else, call it morality or decent behavior or the good of society, has claims on this self, claims which interfere with its own desires. What we mean by being good is giving in to those claims. Some of the things the ordinary self wanted to do turn out to be what we call wrong. Well, we must give them up. Other things which the self did not want to do turn out to be what we call right. Well, we shall have to do them. But we are hoping all the time that when all the demands have been met, the poor natural self will still have some chance and some time to get on with its own life and do what it likes. As long as we are thinking that way, one or other of two results is likely to follow. Either we will give up trying to be good, or else we will become very unhappy indeed. Let me just pause here for a second and tell you that Lewis started out Christian, but this constant effort to be good was so great that it finally will drive him to atheism. He called church leaders in his very first Christian book called The Pilgrim's Regress, the stewards, God was the landlord, and the commandments were the rule cards. And he felt he could not live them all. He wrote about the character who was himself in The Pilgrim's Regress. He would wake full of fear and take down the card and read it and determine that today he would really begin to keep the rules. But the strain was intolerable. Tomorrow will be easier, but tomorrow was always harder. Because he couldn't do it, and because God was not a loving being who desired our happiness, the fear of the landlord and the burden of the rules in time drove him to atheism. Later, Tolkien and some other friends would bring him back. But when he says we're going to give up trying to be good or become very unhappy indeed, that's exactly what happened to him.
Continuing with Lewis, make no mistake, if you are really going to try to meet all the demands made on the natural self, it will not have enough left over to live on. The more you obey your conscience, the more your conscience will demand of you. And your natural self, which is thus being starved and hampered and worried at every turn, will get angrier and angrier. And there's some interesting paradoxes in the scriptures. Jesus says, let your light shine, but don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's a paradox. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden light. But he also says, pick up your cross. So is the burden easy or light? Is it a cross or an easy yoke? Lewis answered it this way. The Christian way is different, harder, easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires that you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. In the Doctrine and Covenants, there are three beautiful L words that Christ says to us. Look unto me in every thought. Learn of me. Listen to my words. And walk in the meekness of my spirit. What Lewis is telling us is that we look, we learn, we listen. We, we immerse ourselves in the Gospels, in Christ, in what he did. And then we simply try to do what he did. That's the way we tear the dragon skins off, kill the lizards, and pull the rabbit hair out. When he said be perfect, he meant it. He meant we must go in for the full treatment. It is hard. But the sort of compromise we are all hankering after is harder. In fact, it's impossible. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are like eggs at present, and you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary decent egg. We must be hatched or go bad. This is the whole of Christianity. There is nothing else. There is a wonderful parable Jesus tells about the building of a tower. That we are supposed to count the cost. And don't start the tower unless we intend to finish it or people will mock us. The Savior ends that parable by saying, So likewise, whosoever he be among you that forsaketh not all that he hath, can be my disciple. The building of the tower is to forsake all that we have. Now that's not just material goods, the way we generally read it. It means our thoughts, our attitudes, our words, our feelings, everything that would not fit perfectly with Christ's life must be gone. All the dragon skins, all the rabbit fur. Make no mistake, Lewis said, he says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that is what you are in for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will and you may choose to push me away. 
But if you do not push me away, understand that I am going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you after death, whatever it costs me, I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect, until my Father can say without reservation, He is well pleased with you, as He said He was well pleased with me. This I can do and will do. I will do nothing less. God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. On the one hand, God's demand for perfection need not discourage you in the least, in your present attempts to be good, or even in your present failures. Each time you fall, he will pick you up again. And he knows perfectly well that your own efforts are never going to bring you anywhere near perfection. On the other hand, you must realize from the outset that the goal towards which he is beginning to guide you is absolute perfection and no power in the whole universe except you yourself can prevent him from taking you to that goal. Be perfect is not idealistic, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. He said in the Bible, we were gods. And he is going to make good his words if we let him, for we can prevent him. That fur will come out, the dragon skins peel back, the lizard's gone, the tooth out, the branch cut off, all the different ways he described it. Because all those things are things that bring us unhappiness. There is no other way to happiness for which we are made, he said. When we want to be something other than the thing God wants us to be, we must be wanting what, in fact, will not make us happy. So that brings us to the longing that he felt as a boy looking at the hills. Because the journey is hard, we need encouragement along the way. And Lewis felt that this longing, he had a lot of different words for this longing for a place that nothing on earth could satisfy. He, he once described the soul as a hollow God fills. I love that description. The longing was to feel this emptiness that there was nothing on earth that could bring me the joy for which I was made. It was a kind of a, an earnest, what, what Paul called an earnest. Uh, Paul said that, God gives us earnests of, of the spirit. Now, earnest money is what you give that assures people that more is coming, right? And it's usually a very small amount. So Lewis felt that this longing, this divine homesickness, he said, this joy that he felt from time to time was the earnest. God promising it'll be worth the effort the joy will be worth it. And I'll give you little bright spots of God light eh, from time to time to keep you moving a, a foretaste of the great joy that one day we would have. Again, a section from the Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan threw up his shaggy head, opened his mouth, and uttered a long single note. Not very loud, but full of power. Polly's heart jumped in her when she heard it. She felt sure that it was a call and that anyone who heard that call would want to obey it and what's more would be able to obey it. 
however many worlds and ages lay between. This joy, this longing, this divine homesickness, this inkling, this spilled religion, he had all kinds of words for it, this earnest of the promised joy that would come was to teach us that there is a far, far greater happiness designed for us than any we can imagine on earth. We would then be more willing to let go, when necessary, of what we'll talk about in the next talk, Turkish delight. <laughs> We'd be more willing to let go of it. We'll be more willing to get rid of the dragon skins and let the lizards go. We will understand that the smaller worldly pleasures are not worth that eternal pleasure and joy. If we are honest with ourselves, we will realize that we are not entirely at home here on earth, that we are strangers, pilgrims, seeking a happiness we can't find. So the longing comes to tell us that. This is my real country, one of the characters in Narnia says. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. In speaking of this desire for our far-off country, Lewis wrote, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. Apparently, our lifelong nostalgia our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. The experience, he wrote in another place, is one of intense longing, this hunger that is better than any fullness, this poverty better than any wealth. That something you were born desiring and which beneath the flux of other desires and in all the momentary silences between the louder passions night and day, year by year, childhood, old age, you are looking for, watching for, listening for. If a man diligently follows this desire, he must come out at last into the clear knowledge that the human soul was made to enjoy something some object that is never fully given, nay, cannot even be imagined as given in our present experience. Most people, if they look into their hearts, discover they want something acutely that cannot be had in this world. I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. Perhaps you have now quoted that from about six different places because he talks about it so often. Perhaps you have felt this uh, longing, this, I call it, uh, moments when the celestial breezes float open the veil just a little bit and we get a f and it fans our face just a little bit. Um, when I was married, a seal to my wife, that breeze just blew, that veil just a little bit to cool my face with celestial glory. Never forget that moment. Uh, I, I can't describe it. For years I wondered, how do I describe that moment? I 
as I knelt there. And I think God just let a little drop of celestial glory hit that altar where we knelt. And one day, I found Lewis describe it for me. Perhaps you felt this kind of a feeling somewhere, sometime, that said to you, this really isn't home, and no happiness here can satisfy the happiness that will be there. This is in The Magician's Nephew from the Chronicles of Narnia. As they say goodbye to Aslan one time, such a sweetness and power rolled about them and over them and entered into them that they felt they had never really been happy or wise or good or even alive and awake before. And the memory of that moment stayed with them always, so that as long as they both lived, if ever they were sad or afraid or angry, the thought of all that golden goodness and the feeling that it was still there, quite close, just around some corner, just behind some door, would return and make them sure deep down inside that all was well. The quality of this longing had something of remembrance in it. And Lewis never got to a pre-mortal existence, as did, for instance, Wordsworth, who wrote, Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. Right? Wordsworth did get to the point where he truly believed in a pre-mortal existence. Once again, you see Joseph Smith going a step further, right? But things that Lewis wrote would suggest that this longing, this homesickness, suggested a previous life. So in a poem he wrote, he did write poetry. He wrote of vanished knowledge, a music that resembled some earlier music that men are born remembering. At the end of Screwtape, he writes of that central music in every pure experience which had always just evaded memory was now at last recovered. In another poem, he wrote of memory reaches us. We know more than bones can teach before we're born. We have heard it. In uh, one of the uh, science fiction novels, he wrote of a sense of great masses moving at visionary speeds, of giants dancing, of eternal sorrows eternally consoled, of he knew not what, and yet had always known, awoke in him with the very first barge of the dirge, he hears some music in the distance, bowed down his spirit as if the gate of heaven had opened before him. In a, one of the other science fiction ones, he hears and speaks of a cord of longing seemed to him at that moment to have been fastened long, long before. Long before the earliest times that memory could recover in his childhood, before the origins of time. It was sharp, sweet, wild, and holy, all in one. So the longing was not for something we had never had, a happiness we had never had, but something we had had and lost and needed and wanted to return to. Uh, this longing, this joy, this divine homesickness, this spilled religion, this patches of God light, I love all the phrases that he has for it. 
was not just for a far-off country or place, but for a being, a relationship that occupied the very center of that country. We were longing for our father. We were longing for his son. And we knew them both. In The Magician's Nephew, again, the Chronicles of Narnia, as Aslan meets a cabbie who's been brought into Narnia. Son, said Aslan to the cabbie, I have known you long. Do you know me? Well, no, sir, said the cabbie, leastwise not in an ordinary manner of speaking, yet I feel somehow, if I may make so free as how we've met before. It is well, said the lion, you know me better than you think you know. And you shall live to know me better yet. There is a wonderful exchange in Prince Casimir between Aslan and Lucy. If you've seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know Lucy is the youngest girl. When she goes back into Narnia the second time and she sees Aslan, she says, Aslan, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, said Aslan. Not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. What a beautiful thought of Christ. We know him. We remember him. But the more we know, the bigger he becomes. In the voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lucy comes upon a big kind of a magician's spell book. And one of the spells says, for the refreshing of the soul. And as she reads it, she feels this homesickness for not a place, but a being and a story. Notice how Lewis weaves into this the great elements of the story of Christ and our hunger for him. On the next page, he came to a spell for the refreshment of the spirit. The pictures were fewer here, but very beautiful. And what Lucy found herself reading was more like a story than a spell. He went on for three pages. And before she had read to the bottom of the page, she had forgotten that she was reading at all. She was living in the story as if it were real. And all the pictures were real, too. When she got to the third page and had come to the end, she said, That is the loveliest story I have ever read or ever shall read in my whole life. Oh, I wish I could have gone on reading it for ten years. At least I'll read it over again. But the book wouldn't let you go back and read it again. I must remember it. Let's see. It was about, about, oh dear, it's all fading away again. It was about a cup. And a sword. And a tree. And a green hill. I know that much. But I can't remember, and what shall I do? And she never could remember. And ever since that day, what Lucy means by a good story is a story which reminds her of the forgotten story in the magician's book. Lewis believed that everything that ever touched us in literature, in life, was but an echo or a shadow of the great story that we all are part of, that we are in in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, the first time they hear the name of Aslan, a remarkable thing happens. Now, in the movie, you don't get that. You have to read it, right? Because they can't portray this happening. But this is what happens. 
They say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. The beavers say that. Now, a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver spoke these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had enormous meaning, a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in his inside. Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it is the beginning of holidays or the beginning of summer. Remember, school for Lewis was concentration camp, bells and <laughs> The main reason that Lewis uh, wrote the Chronicles was to help us love Christ. If we're going to be like him, if we're going to go through the challenge of being de-dragonized, uh, we must know what he's like. And perhaps more important, we must love him. But the love is already there. We just have to remember it. We must be grateful. Lewis created Asin for that purpose. And you know you do love that lion. You love him for his dignity, his wisdom, his pure goodness, his gentleness. Perhaps most of all, you love him because he wants us to receive his love and to know him and to have his happiness. There's a beautiful place in the lion and his, or the horse and his boy, when a boy named Shast is riding over a high mountain all alone on an old horse. It's foggy and misty and he can't see. And suddenly as he's walking along, he senses something walking beside him in the mist and darkness. And he's terrified. And he goes faster and the thing goes faster. And finally in his fear, he turns into the darkness and he says, Who are you? And the answer is, I am one who has waited a long time for you to talk to him. In a fictional way, that's the story of Lewis's whole life. That God, Christ, walked and waited and waited for him to talk to him. So he could help him be happy and receive joy. So he could be surprised by the joy. Not the landlord and the burden of the rules, but joy and happiness. He described his own conversion to Christ this way. You must picture me alone in the room in Maudlin night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility that will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore 
that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction looking for a chance of escape. The hardness of God is kinder than the softest of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. We truly are surprised by joy. In the last chapter, I'll conclude with this, of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The children are afraid that it's going to be quite a while before they can come back into Narnia, and they want it to be soon. They're talking with Aslan, and so Lucy says, Will you tell us how to get into your country from our world? I shall be telling you all the time, said Aslan. But I will not tell you how long or short the way will be, only that it lies across the river. But do not fear that, for I am the great bridge builder. And now come, I will open the door in the sky and send you to your own land. Please, Aslan, said Lucy, before we go, will you tell us when we can come back to Narnia again, please? And oh, do, do, do make it soon. Dearest, said Aslan very gently, you and your brother will never come back to Narnia. Oh, Aslan, said Edmund and Lucy, both together in despairing voices. You are two old children, said Aslan, and you must begin to come close to your own world now. It isn't Narnia, you know, sobbed Lucy. It's you. We shan't meet you there. And how can we live never meeting you? But you shall meet me there, dear one, said Aslan. Are, are you there too, sir, said Edmund? I am, said Aslan, but there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This is the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. Lewis had a profound love for Christ. How grateful we are for God's divine humility that brought that prodigal kicking and screaming into his kingdom. The divine humility that seeks us out also. And how grateful that it found C.S. Lewis, who put into words stories and pictures of lions and dragons, and as we'll see, Turkish delight. So much that we all believe and feel, but may find hard to express. May God fill the hollow of your souls with the fullest abundance of his joy that we may be as happy as God means us to be, that we may be part of chapter one of the great story that goes on forever and ever, that all our longings may find satisfaction, that we may be gods, goddesses, radiant, drenched in joy, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the end of CD number one. Please continue listening on CD number two.